The first reading is Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through to 8. It's on page 659 of your pew Bibles. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow down before the exalted God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. second reading is from Mark, chapter 2, verse 23, on page 708 in your church Bible. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and, at his, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abitha, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawfully only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him and closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? but they remained silent. He looked around at them in, ang in sorry, at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Dumia, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because, the crowd he told, because of the crowd, 
he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed so many so that those with disease were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee and his brother John, to them he gave the name Benerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Thus say the words of the Lord. Uh, please do have open that part of Mark's Gospel that Georgie just read to us. Uh, if you're just visiting amongst us over the past few weeks, we have been looking Uh, at exactly who Jesus is. We've been looking at Mark's gospel and how Mark presents Jesus to us uh, as we lead into Easter. Uh, But how about I pray that God might speak to us clearly this morning. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, that indeed you reveal yourself to us by it. Uh, But Father, we pray your spirit would be at work this morning that through your word we might know you better. 
and in knowing you that we might find comfort but also be transformed to become more and more like the Lord Jesus who died for us. Uh, Father, speak to us, we pray. Amen. Uh, More and more, the evidence points to the fact that uh, goodness is rewarding. That is, it it pays to be nice. Uh, You might have caught the TV series a year or so ago, Making Australia Happy. Uh, They did a social experiment done on eight Marrickville residents. Marrickville, just next to Dulwich Hill for the codes. Um, Apparently, Marrickville has the highest rate of depression uh, in Sydney. Uh, and acts as simple as buying a, a gift for a stranger, acts as simple as uh, volunteering for a soup kitchen, didn't just make those who did it feel happier. Uh, it was shown to produce measurable hormonal changes in them. Now, goodness actually pays off. It, it works for those who do good, not just those who receive goodness. Uh, there's more and more evidence that builds up there and kind of makes you want to start a, you know, a new habit of altruism because uh, it'll do you good. But what if goodness cost you? What if your kindness brought opposition from others? What if it damaged those who are closest to you and at least your relationships with them? Now, how hard would you pursue goodness if you knew you'd pay heavily for the privilege of being kind to others? So as we have God address us again from Mark's Gospel, uh, the question still hanging over us is, who is Jesus? And God would have us see from what we just read this morning that Jesus is a force for good despite the cost. And as we see that more clearly, I suspect we'll we'll have a comfort in following him, but also a motivation, a motivation to keep pursuing goodness. So as we pick up the story, Jesus is in the middle of this series of clashes with uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. So his repeated offence is really his goodness. His goodness doesn't fit in with their framework of religion and righteousness. Uh, and so Mark recounts for us two kind of Sabbath controversies. So in verse 23, 223, Jesus and his followers are, are wandering through someone's cornfields uh, and they decide to grab themselves a snack. Now, of course, if that happened today, someone's wandering through the shop and just picked up something, you know, had the banana, decided to mind you, we'd go, that's theft, stop it. But no, 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 that's not the issue. Um, in, in Israelite society, in Deuteronomy 23, there's this beautiful law that allowed you to, to take a handful when you're wandering through someone's uh, field. Just, you're not allowed to kind of pull out the sickle, though, and start cutting it down and taking extras home. You know, snacks are allowed by law. The scribe's issue is not theft, but in verse 24, it's work on the day of rest. It's not what they do, but when they're doing it. And Jesus corrects them. Uh, he points to a time... Uh, David's time, another instance of godly men doing something forbidden. Uh, Because in verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. See, God had always understood his laws to be a blessing, to be good for us. Uh, So the Sabbath was um, instituted as a response. It's the the peak of God's creative work. It was the day of rest, a day to enjoy God's generosity and most of all a day to enjoy God himself. So if you, if you recall the Genesis account in Genesis 1, you know, there's all this good work, activity, activity, activity for six days, but on the seventh day, here's the chance to actually delight in it. It's the peak of everything. It was holy to the Lord. Now, even today, uh, to stop work one day a week does you good. It helps you remember life is much more than work. 
but the liberation that the Sabbath and rules about the Sabbath was meant to create had been twisted. It had been twisted to a day of limitation by human rules. Yeah, and Jesus drives that point home even harder in the, in the next incident, in the start of chapter 3. Um, he, he takes a challenge to them rather than kind of them taking it to him. In 3 verse 2, uh, they are looking to find fault in him and he knows it. He knows there's kind of a, a trap waiting to happen. Does that mean he backs out? No, no, no. He takes it to them. He explicitly challenges them about the purpose of the Sabbath. In verse 4, after inviting the man with a shriveled man hand to stand up, he says, what's lawful? What's, what's the Sabbath all about? To do good or evil? Uh, to save or take life? And after asking the provocative question, he answered himself. He, he heals the man. Now Jesus is again trying to show uh, God's laws always are about a blessing. They're always about doing good. You know, Mark shows that you know, God's laws are not only are geared for good, but Jesus is himself a force for good. Uh, you know, it points, and let's be honest, we need almost a cattle prod to go and do what's good. Uh, a friend uh, of mine was in Canada last year and noticed that there were these uh, billboards all around. Billboards, they weren't selling anything. They were just encouraging Canadians to be nicer to each other and do deeds of kindness. And you think Canadians, they're already pretty polite and pleasant. Um, and yet they're trying to go further. So there was this group, a, a, a kind of social movement called People for Good, and they ran this series of ads across the major cities of Canada. Uh, 350 different media organisations got involved. Um, just nice sentiments, some of them. So on the, on the back of a bus it read, Need a lift? You look great today. Uh, so some of it is just kind of making you feel good. Uh, but some of them were, were, were ideas of nice things you could do, you know. Uh, you know give someone a smile who's a stranger. Uh, you know, give up your seat for someone on public transport. Uh, and it was working. My friend said he saw people um, buying coffees for strangers, just the person you know, behind them in the queue. And it was a great campaign, but it's so safe and so small compared to Jesus. You know, Jesus does his good forcefully. You know, not only does he have kind of the ability to achieve and, and, and do results and, and heal beyond kind of our abilities, uh, he's willing to challenge and dismantle the human structures that entrench evil. And so not surprisingly, it comes at a cost. You know, in verse six, 3, verse 6, we see uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians get together. They effectively answer that question Jesus said, what should you do on the Sabbath? You know, take a life or give life? Well, their actions answer it. They get together to plot his death. Yeah, but they're not content with just kind of plans uh, of what will come in the future. By the time you get down to 3, verse 22, uh, we see some, some experts have come down from the big smoke of Jerusalem. It's kind of like people leaving Sydney to go down to sort out a problem in Dubbo. You know, like it, for some reason, they're captivated by this guy who's causing a, a kind of regional stir and they need to stop him. Uh, and so they come down um, and they can't discredit the work he's done, so they just discredit his reputation where he's got the source of power to do the work. They call him effectively in verse 22, uh, an agent of Satan. You know, it is costly for Jesus to do this. And more painfully, it's costing him even his family. Are we struck there in verse 21? His family come and it's not, oh, Jesus, it's great to see you. You've really achieved. You've excelled all our expectations. No, no, no. Uh, they want to come and seize him in verse 21 because they think he's out of his mind. 
Now, Jesus might be a force for good, but it costs. And so, yes, he does withdraw from where the Pharisees hang out in synagogues. He doesn't turn up in another one from, uh, until Mark chapter 7. So several chapters, a long time goes by before he goes and hangs out with him. But that doesn't mean he's backing down. He's not withdrawing from defiant acts of goodness. You know, he goes on, and we see it here in this chapter, he is, he is challenging uh, the authority of evil spirits. So um, he answers their accusation by talking about how he, brought, how he binds the strong man, Satan, and he is plundering Satan, uh, just as was predicted in Isaiah 49. Um, you know, so even now, every person who comes to Christ, even this day, is actually Jesus stepping in and plundering Satan's realm, stealing them away, robbing Satan blind. You know, the only unforgivable sin Jesus points out there uh, is, is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Uh, in this context, you know, the, the only people who are still in Satan's realm uh, are those who will not acknowledge that Jesus and his actions are from the Spirit of God. He doesn't back down from doing good. He, he plunders Satan. Um, he goes on, he challenges structures of Jewish society. You know, he dismantles and, and, and disagrees with their interpretation of the law. Uh, even more, he, he actually starts rebuilding a new nation. Uh, so he comes down from the mountain in verse 13. Mountains are classically in the Bible places of salvation, places of revelation, of new beginning. Um, and he comes down from the mountain and he anoints a new 12. It's not an accidental number. Uh, there were 12 tribes of Israel and now he's starting with a new 12. And he is handing over them the kind of power to preach but do it authoritatively. He is starting a new kingdom. He even challenges that most precious of institutions in creation. He challenges the family and he says his kingdom is something greater and redefines and breaks across all barriers. See, though the, though the cost is great... Jesus keeps meeting people's temporal needs and he keeps meeting their eternal needs. Now, not only uh, is Mark revealing Jesus to us, but he's also revealing to us something about both goodness and what the human heart is like. You know, for all the kind of friendly Canadian campaigns, we don't like to be made uncomfortable even by goodness, even by what's best for us. Yeah, and despite the cost, he will bring good. And when you grasp Jesus is that kind of force for good, um, I think three implications flow. First, you'll realise that Jesus is always selflessly for your good. For your good. So this recording of, of Jesus in action is, is a reminder of how he works in all things for the good of those he's called. In verse 5, uh, Jesus was moved to anger. He is grieved by hard hearts. You know, he's got this godly anger uh, against those who don't desire his love of goodness. You know, and it bubbles up into actions that cost him his family, it cost him his reputation. You know, even before we get to the cross uh, where Jesus died to redeem us, even before we get there, we see he's actually got a whole life that was geared towards the benefit of his people, to benefit of others. That means he is selflessly for your good. Because let's be honest, Jesus asks hard things of us at points. Jesus asks you to bless your enemies. Jesus asks you to love him above your family. Jesus asks you to pursue his kingdom, his concerns, 
uh, above the normal worries of your job and put it first before your house and even at the cost of your reputation. He actually asks really hard things. But know this, they're not self-serving commands he gives. You know, morality, uh, you know, this new way of life, that's not bad news after the good news of salvation. It's not kind of like, you know, Jesus saves us, oh, super good news, and what, I have to live differently? Oh, no, no it's not like that. Um, it's all part of the good news. Part and parcel of Jesus' good news is actually we live his way because every challenging request he makes of you is genuinely for your good. Uh, coming away the other night from... Uh, talks at the Opera House uh, on uh, religion for atheists with, with David Ton. I felt strangely encouraged. Uh, not everything was encouraging. There was this kind of sad throwaway line uh, to quote him, uh, there is no God, now let's move on. And that kind of received you know, a bit of rapturous applause. Uh, that wasn't particularly encouraging. But the broader tone, the broader tone uh, was almost an envy of what religion has to offer. You know, one example uh, he spoke about was community. Uh, that we have communities where people who have absolutely nothing alike, uh, we actually come together and we share life and we care for each other deeply. Yeah, and he knows, uh, he noted the secular world doesn't have that. Uh, and for me, it was kind of a, a reminder not to take for granted that the benefit of Jesus ways. Yeah, what he asks of us is for our good. How do you balk at some of the things that Jesus asks you to do? If you do, I want you to remember he is selflessly for your good. He asks nothing of you that won't overcome evil in your life or in the world. He's for your good. The second implication when you see that Jesus is just this force for good despite the cost is, is there's an invitation. You know, to, to join his family is to join doing good. Now, perhaps most pointedly, Mark has presented Jesus in this way through this kind of narrative style to challenge us. You know, so you read through the stories and you see um, some people are loving Jesus. They're flocking to him so much so that he, he's kind of being overwhelmed and has to, you know, jump in a boat to kind of get some space from them. And, you know, they, they, are, they are rushing, they want to touch him and, and then there are others who want to kind of put him to death. And, and it keeps presenting the way he's written it is, which side are you on? Who, who do you belong with? You know, who do you say Jesus is? Will you be a part of his family? You know, the climax of chapter 3, Jesus looks around, verse 34, he looked around at those seated in a circle around him. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. You know, in Jesus' day, um, the family was the, the basis of um, social and economic life. You know, people worked in the family business, said, you know, they, who they knew, they didn't travel around... It was the source of your identity. To lose your family was like losing your life. And it must have shocked everyone when he just seemingly discards his natural family and selects new members. Now, it's worth remembering, uh, Jesus still loved his earthly family. Uh, you might recall, as he hung dying on the cross, one of his seven final statements uh, was to arrange for John to take care of his mother. He still loved his family, but it's with with typically edgy language. Jesus is opening the doors, not just for, for sinners to be his friends, which we looked at last week, but he actually says, you sinners can be my family. You sinners can be my life. Now, whoever 
the word there, whoever in verse 35, it's irrelevant your past or your credentials or your lack of credentials, whoever does the will of my father is my brother, is my sister. In the context, doing the will of the Father is is bringing in the kingdom of God. It's doing good for people's temporal needs, yes, even more. It's it's freeing them from man-made religion. It's inviting them out of Satan's realm and into Christ's. To do his will is to help others experience the kingdom of God. How do you know if Jesus is your brother? Well, if you actually do God's will. And I'm aware you say things like that and and it can seem a little bit so abstract you don't know where to start and so we end up doing kind of nothing. Paralysis or something. Or we content ourselves with living out the niceness that those lovely Canadians promote. Which, you know, let's be honest, Sydney desperately needs a bit more niceness. Uh, But to make it more concrete, uh, let me ask you, start doing God's will on a small scale. Okay, pick three people, three real people, people you can name. Uh, last year in 2011, we, we had a desire to reach three people for Christ, maybe those three people. So have in your mind now three specific people. Okay? With those three people in mind, what's one thing you could do for them physically, emotionally and spiritually that they might experience the kingdom of God? Okay, with those three real people, not kind of abstract, concrete people, what can you do physically, emotionally and spiritually that they might experience the, God, the, experience the kingdom of God? You know, and get on and do God's will. Not, not for your benefit, but theirs. Now, Jesus is outrageously good in opening up his family to, to all comers, but that invitation needs to be taken up. Join him in doing good. And thirdly and finally... When you grasp Jesus as a force for good, no matter the cost, do good even when it costs you. Yep, altruism does have its benefits, but seeing Christ, you realise unsettling goodness costs. Now, Jesus is paying for the privilege of serving us. And that's exactly what Jesus invites us to copy. You know, to stick your head up and do good even though it costs you. You know, keep being kind to that thankless colleague, to that demanding child, even your own demanding child, to the neighbour who continues to frustrate you. You know, it is an invitation as well, not just to do good pub- privately, but even in the public sphere. You know, sometimes social ills can actually be changed. We can uh, reform the manners of society, to speak in the old style. You know, our society has massive problems with, with binge drinking, with, with gambling. But if we were to take that on, it would cost us, as it did for Jesus when he challenged social structures of the day. 